The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Hello. How are we? Good. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them out. If you don't, that's okay. We're going to have it on the screen. Uh, If you're new here and you've never uh, seen or met me, my name is Tyler. I'm one of three pastors here at Story City Church. We're a church that planted, uh, we moved to the city about two years ago. Um, Coming up in January, we officially launched in February of this year, and we've been in this building for about two months, and we're seeing God do awesome things, so we're excited for this morning and what he has in store for us. I want to start by reading his word. Uh, We are in the last week of our Futures series. Um, We've been looking at the book of 1 Peter together. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Let me read this for us. To the elders among you. I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word this morning, I have complete confidence that it is able to reach every single soul in this room, mine included, with the truth that is needed. But Lord, I have little confidence in the man on the stage. I am a a sinner in need of grace this morning, an imperfect man, so would you cover me with your mighty hand by your grace? And let your word ring true and loud and clear in our hearts this morning because you tell us, as Craig said this morning, that your word alone revives our souls. And we need to be revived this morning, God. We want to see dead things coming to life. So would that happen in this place by your word and by your spirit? That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Tom. Every church needs a Tom. Hangs out in the front row and gives you an amen. Um, so, uh, did we have a good Thanksgiving? Yes? Uh, are the chairs feeling a little tighter this morning? Anybody secretly have their top button undone and pulling their shirt down? That's okay. So, um, we're officially, by the way, if I see anybody pulling out a turkey sandwich this morning, I will call you out um, and maybe ask for some. Um, so, uh, <laughs> it's officially the holiday season now, right? Like, we can officially say it's Christmas, it's happened. My buddy Chris helped me out with something yesterday, and he's, he's putting lights up in his yard right now. we got to go by Chris's house and see his lights. But it's time. It's time. Who is the guy in here that has already been rocking Christmas music for like a month already? Who's the guy or gal that like, okay, we'll, we'll pray for you. God still loves you. Um, but uh, I, I love Christmas. Do you know who loves Christmas is my two-year-old daughter. I have a two-year-old daughter named Gracelyn. She loves Christmas. The way I know this is she's developed this amazing new habit. Um, it's started about three months ago. It hasn't stopped yet. I'm hoping it will soon. Um, 
we will be in random places, my wife and I, like the last time it happened to Olive Garden, uh, trying to enjoy some breadsticks. And whenever she sees an elderly gentleman with a grayish beard resembling Mr. Claus, she has this cute little habit where she will look at him and say, ho, 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 unashamedly, nonstop, until literally we almost have to carry her out of the room. Let me tell you, that's funny here. That's a very awkward experience when you can't get your daughter to stop ho-ho-hoing at the elderly couple at Olive Garden that just wants to enjoy their breadsticks in peace. <laughs> it's very humbling. You know, it's, it's funny. The task of raising a child altogether, I would say, is it's got a way of humbling you. It's got a way of pulling any illusions of grandeur. You know, I used to be the guy that believed I was going to be in Coldplay one day. I was going to play my guitar for millions. Now I'm the guy who's cleaning poop up out of the carpet at nap time because my daughter has taken her diaper off again. That's life. And humility, it's a word that in a culture like ours, you don't hear a ton, right? Like none of the self-help gurus that stock the shelves of Barnes & Noble are filling their books with advice on how to be humble, right? Like you're going to be hard-pressed to find a Tony Robbins tweet on humility, they're writing books on seven steps to get ahead. Their gospel sounds a lot, not like be humble and take the position that is below willingly. It sounds more like no one's going to give this to you. You got to reach deep down inside yourself and find that spark. There's no end to the potential deep inside of you if you believe in yourself. By the way, I want to stop myself. I like Tony Robbins. I'm not taking any shots up here intentionally. But their gospel sounds a lot more like shoot for the moon and you'll land among the stars, right? You are special and beautiful and gosh darn it, people like you, right? That's their gospel. If you know, you know. But the Bible and our text this morning is going to set a jarringly different picture before us. It's going to tell us that counterintuitively, meaning not the way we are normally going to think as humans, the path to true greatness is paved with humility. And more than that, inside of the church, humility among the people of God is the surest sign that the gospel is thriving and moving in power. It's a largely misunderstood concept in our world today. A lot of people would hear it and equate it with weakness or insecurity or a lack of confidence or they would say, sure, humility is a virtue, but not really give it any serious time on air, no prime time slot. They're going to push it aside pretty quickly. But the Bible tells us that there's nothing more important in the life of a believer than to walk in humility. So what is humility? As C.S. Lewis puts it, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You tracking with that? It's not thinking less of yourself, downplaying yourself, but it's literally, you're not thinking of yourself. He says it this way in Mere Christianity. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy person who's always telling you that of course he's nobody. Probably all you would think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in you and what you said. So Lewis tells us that the humble man isn't downplaying himself, isn't weak, but rather is meek, concealed power. So a working definition of humility for this morning. Humility is a byproduct of belief in the gospel. 
that leads us to an accurate estimation of ourselves. Put simply, humility is seeing yourself rightly. It's seeing yourself clearly. It's seeing yourself through the lenses that God sees you through. It's having a sober estimation of yourself. Humility is the mark of a heart that has had a radical encounter with the glory and grace of God in the gospel. It's neither self-aggrandizing or self-degrading. It's not looking at itself at all, but out beyond itself to the glory of something greater. And in doing so, it's freed from its relentless posturing. And in a word, it becomes happy. A humble heart can forgive because it's humbled by how much it's been freely given and forgiven in Christ. It can serve and willingly take the low spot because it knows that Jesus, the God of glory, did the same for it. It stands with nothing to lose by standing in the low spot. It knows where its identity is. The Bible would say, contrary to what our culture might believe, that humility is actually the most empowering and freeing thing that a man can wear. So our main thought this morning, if there's one thought I want to drive home for Story City Church this morning, it's this. Here in this body, humility among the people of God is a sure sign of growth in the gospel and a potent testimony to a watching world. So let's look at our text. Let's get towards our text. A little context as we get to the end of Peter. Peter has been writing a letter to a suffering church. This church was a first century church and they've been going through hard times. We think we're suffering now as a church. We're starting to feel it inching in, feel the persecution. We ain't seen nothing compared to what this church is seeing. This Emperor Nero is literally burning Christians alive and using them as torches to light his garden for garden parties. He is dragging Christians publicly through the square until they die behind his horses. He is putting Christians in leather bags and dipping them and pulling them up out of the water so that the bag shrinks and they suffocate to death. This is the type of persecution that the church that is receiving this letter is operating under, and it is messy, and it is not clean, and there's no hiding, and it's a calculated attack on the movement, this new movement rooted in Jesus and what he accomplished called Christianity. Peter writes this letter essentially to say this it's bad, you're suffering, but there's hope. This is not the end. You have a hope hidden in the hands of a resurrected king, church, that can never be taken from you by persecution or poverty or suffering or pain. He starts his letter to this suffering church here, rejoicing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is the one nail we want to drive home as we wind this series down, as we call this series Futures. We want to focus in that the promises we have in the gospel give us a future hope that cannot be taken away from us or this church 2,000 years ago that is so unshakable that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how lonely you are, no matter how broke you are, no matter how sick you are, there is coming a glorious moment where God restores all things. Jesus appears and all things are made made right. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, called it the eucatastrophe. It's a weird word. It's made up. But he literally said it was the sudden turn in the story 
that was so happy it made all the sadness that had happened before untrue. And not only that, but this moment has become that much more sweeter because of what we walked through. It turns everything on its head. And Peter is saying, this is coming for you, church. It's coming. Wait on it. You have a hope. There can't be taken away. And it's rooted all in the gospel of what Jesus accomplished. So I want to say this this morning. If the gospel is so powerful that it was able to give this church that was literally being murdered in the public square the kind of hope where they could rejoice together, worship together, not fear together, and if it's the only hope our church really has and this church really had of seeing and understanding the humility because humility is always a byproduct of understanding the gospel, I don't think we'd be wasting our time to take a few minutes before we dive in to the text this morning just to clear up and say, what is this gospel? Because as one of my favorite pastors says, Matt Chandler, he says this, where the gospel is assumed, the gospel is lost. Where the gospel is assumed, the gospel is lost. We cannot assume the gospel. We need to preach it weekly. We need to lay it in front of ourselves, stare at it. And my hope is that as we unfold the gospel this morning, our hearts are stirred and we are resurrected once more into a new hope. So what is the gospel? Well, gospel simply means good news, literally. It means good news. And what is the good news of the Christian gospel? What is the good news of the Christian gospel? The good news of the Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ himself came from the throne, came to planet Earth, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, resurrected in power, ascended to the right hand of God where he sits. And in doing so, he has crushed death, he has crushed sin, he has crushed Satan, he has crushed all of our enemies, and he has given us a future hope, and it's all because of what he has done. But the gospel tells us some things about ourselves this morning. Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I love this quote. I love this quote. I call it the two pillars of the gospel. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So, like any movie, right? If the movie, we've seen a few movies that are like all good news the whole way through. They're like six out of 10 movies at best, right? It's like everything's happy always, nothing bad ever happens. You're kind of sitting there watching the movie like, when's the bad thing gonna happen? It never does. I like movies with conflict, and the reason I like movies with conflict is because I know and believe that a resolution is coming, and the gospel is similar. It's in its narrative, and the way it works itself out. It gives us some bad news. There's a dark backdrop against which the light shines, and the dark backdrop that sets up the gospel to radiate and illuminate is this. Every single person in this room is more sinful than we ever dared imagined. We have sinned. We have tried to be good and failed. We have walked away from God. We have chosen ourselves over God. We have belittled one another. Isaiah 64 would say that even our best efforts, even the best thing you've ever done, your shining moment, I'm standing before God. God, this is my shining moment. I'm gonna lay it before you, my perfect thing. God would look at it, and Isaiah says he would look at it 
and call it filthy rags because the standard is not, are you better than your neighbor Tom or better than your neighbor Sue or better than the other people in this room? The standard is, are you holy? Are you perfect? The standard is God's standard and God's standard is holiness and no one meets it because Psalm 51 would tell us that we were born sinful. It's not something we chose. It's not something we decided to do. It says in our mother's womb, we were brought forth in iniquity and that we've chosen sin and in doing so, we've inherited death in this world and the next. And the Bible would tell us in Romans that the wages of sin is death, meaning separation from God in this life, separation from our purpose, separation from unity with the Father who loves us, and separation from God eternally in the next life if we do not embrace the gospel. So yes, there is a dark backdrop that hangs so that the gospel can hang down like a light bulb and illuminate. And the beauty of the gospel, the good, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? The good news of the gospel is this, that God, being rich in mercy and rich in love, was not willing to watch the people he had created and loved walk away and suffer. He went out of his way and came to us and rescued us. So that's what we said. Jesus comes to earth. He lives the life we failed to live to satisfy the standard. He dies the death we deserve so that God can pour out his just wrath on sin. And then when Jesus takes our sin, God gives us Jesus' righteousness so that God, when we come to Jesus through faith, can look down on us and say, mine, my beloved child, I adore you, adore you. And it's not just like a get out of jail free card, right? Like there's more to the gospel than that. It's not just that God looks at us and says, okay, Jesus died for you, you can go now. The gospel is this, Jesus died for you and God looks at you and he puts Christ's righteousness on you like a robe and he says, come, I want you, I love you, I want you by my side for all of eternity the beginning of 1 Peter would actually tell us that this truth is so glorious that right now, this is in the Bible, the angels themselves are longing to look into the secrets of the gospel. The angels in heaven are longing. They are in heaven right now going, God, let me see into the gospel, like the depths of what's really there, the depths of what Jesus actually paid, the depths of what's actually going to be inherited that no eye has seen or imagined or heard. Like the Think about this. The angels around the throne of God saying, let me see, let me see. That's what we have this morning. That's what this church in 1 Peter had. But here's the thing. Nobody's going to hear this gospel, no one that's thinking straight, and start walking with a strut, right? Like nobody's going to hear the implications of the gospel. Wait, I'm so bad that the second person of the Holy Godhead had to die on a brutal cross for my salvation? Awesome. What's up? It's not going to happen, right? Anyone in the family of God that is walking with a strut is walking in delusion. They haven't understood that they've freely received, that it's been given at great cost to Jesus. The gospel levels every church at the foot of the cross, regardless of economics, regardless of race, regardless of upbringing, regardless of age, so on and so forth, all of us in this room are sinners clinging to Jesus for forgiveness, and all of us have it richly because of the price that he paid. The gospel outs everyone in this room as a failure. And at the same time, it lists everyone who would come to Christ by faith up as a beloved child of the Most High God. In outing us, here's the beautiful thing. In outing us as sinners, 
The gospel really frees us because as it humbles us, we no longer have to posture and protect ourselves. We no longer have to downplay those around us like the world does so that they can stand taller. We no longer have to fight and make a name for ourselves or obtain power and position. We already know who we are. We have our identity in Christ. We no longer have to cover up our shortcomings and hide our flaws. We've been stripped of our pretenses. And at the very moment... At that very same moment, we've been exalted up. We've been lifted up as beloved kids of God. This is beautiful, good, good news, and it's real. But only the humble will receive it. Only those who are humble will be able to receive it in truth. What's the opposite of humility? Pride, right? You guys with me? Yeah, all right. The opposite of humility is pride. And pride is allergic to this gospel. It just is. Pride is allergic to the gospel of grace. Pride, by definition, is a resistance to the grace of God. By definition, pride is a resistance to the grace of God. The grace of the gospel demands only one thing, that we acknowledge that we bring nothing to the table in the salvation that makes us kids of God. Pride will not accept this. As one pastor puts it, all you need is nothing. All you need is nothing. If you want to come to the gospel, all you need is nothing. You need a willingness to receive it as a free gift and stand amazed. If you're in this room, I think there's two responses that pride typically has to the gospel. Number one, it would say, it's completely free, literally. Like, all I have to do is say I believe, and it's done. It's, I do nothing? That's too easy, man. That's too easy. I, couldn't, I could not base my life on a belief system that easy. There's no way. I mean, you're, you're drinking some Kool-Aid, bro. What have you really done there if it's too easy? You've said, really, I'm not that bad. It's too easy. I can do this. I can earn this. Nothing can be that easy in life. I got to earn this. I'm going to earn this because gosh darn it, people like me. Right? That's pride. At the hidden below that response, there is a heart of pride. The second response I think people say is, it's free. Like, no matter what I do, God will pour his grace out on my life if I come to him by faith in Jesus because of what Jesus had done. Man, you must not know what I've done. I am so bad. You should have seen last night, bro. I was crunk. Right? Like, you, yes, I said crunk. But this response, what's beneath this? If you look at the gospel, you hear the gospel, and you still say, no, I'm too bad. What have you done? You've set yourself up as a higher tribunal than God, and who can justify? You've said, God, you might be willing and able, and the blood of Jesus may be powerful, but it's not more powerful than my sin. And God looks at you, and he says, yes, it is. Receive it as a free gift. Do you see how both of these responses are rooted in pride? And that in order to receive the gospel, you have to be humble. And Peter gets this as he writes this letter. So he turns his focus on this church and he says, you saved and redeemed freely by the promise of Jesus in the gospel, let that make you humble. Clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So to restate our main thought, humility among the people of God is a sure sign of growth in the gospel and a potent testimony to a watching world. So I want, to, I want to highlight two ways that this will work us out in our church, I believe. If we start really experiencing more and more of the gospel, if we continue to allow the gospel to thrive in this church. Number one, our text will tell us that pastors and elders are called to lead in gospel humility. And number two, it would tell us that we are all called to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. 
So first off, pastors are called to lead in humility. I want to say this. This is a tough sermon to preach. I am not a humble man. <laughs> humility is hard. Humility, I like the way Tim Keller says, he says, he says humility is shy. You talk about it and it disappears. Right? Like, you can't, you, we make the joke, like, I'm a humble guy, right? I'm, tell me how humble I am. I'm great. Like, this is a hard, this is a, this is a standard to strive towards. And pastors have to set the mark because God takes leadership within his church seriously. Let's read this text one more time. Verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, that's another word for pastors or leaders within the church, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade. There's so much here, but to put it simply, these are the character traits that should mark those who will lead or desire to lead in the church of God, and they are all rooted in and impossible apart from gospel-informed humility. So let's highlight three ways pastors lead in gospel humility according to this text. Number one, pastors lead in gospel humility through faithful presence. Through faithful presence. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's suffering, who will also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. So Peter begins to discuss, here's how you as pastors and elders, people that lead my church, my flock, should behave. And he doesn't say, be a king ruling with an iron fist. He doesn't say, you're a CEO with a great business plan, now go work it. He says, you're a shepherd. You sit in a field with sheep and you watch over them and you don't move and you stay put and you care for the ones you have. He literally says, the flock of God that is among you, meaning the pastor is not constantly looking over the fence into other pastor's folds and saying, hey, maybe we can get a few more sheep. No, he is faithfully present by the spirit of God, empowering him, watching over the flock of God that God has given to him with great care and great thankfulness for who God has provided. And I wanna say, as one of the three pastors of this church, I am thankful for you guys. This is our flock. These are the sheep of our fold. Matt, Craig, and I are under-shepherds of what this text is going to say. Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd, who is the, who is the true shepherd of the flock. He says we watch over the sheep that are among us. And he says that we have the responsibility of oversight meaning we take a view, we step back, and we look over what's happening. We identify, identify threats approaching the flock of God. We identify needs, and we meet them. We care for the sheep. This is faithful presence. And Jesus set the standard. Check this out. In John 10, verses 11 through 15, he said this, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus himself is willing to take on this humble designation of a shepherd. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. And the man runs away because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down 
for the sheep. How does Jesus want to be seen? He wants to be seen as a shepherd who lays his life down in humility for the sheep that are entrusted to him by the Father. That's the way pastors should be seen. Number one, pastors lead in gospel humility through faithful presence. Number two, pastors lead in gospel humility by doing ministry with gladness. By doing ministry with gladness. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Put this as simple. Let's distill this down to its purest form. Peter says, you want to be a, you're an elder or a pastor in a church? You should want to do that. You should want to do that. There should be something in your heart, like a calling from God, like a fire in your bones that says any other way to spend your life would be to deny God himself who has called you to this task. That is the kind of calling a pastor has to have. A pastor has to say, I got no parachute if this plane goes down. I am with the flock I care for them, I love them, and I do my tasks with gladness. That doesn't mean there aren't bad days. It doesn't mean it's not hard, but it means at the end of the day, there is an undertone of thankfulness and gladness in ministry. You know, Graceland has a basket of toys in her room. It was really great when we got it out of the box. It's a bunch of plastic fruits and corns and all sorts of stuff and hot dogs. She loves to play with them. I call it tea time. I don't know what she calls it because she doesn't talk that much yet, but she loves to feed me this food. And honestly, the food is disgusting because I have no clue for the six hours a day she's napping in that room what she does with that food and the places it is touched. And I have no desire to put it in my mouth. But my two-year-old daughter can look at me and see that she feels it when I'm not committed to playtime. I can see it in her eyes that she knows it. And she's like, Dad, I want you in. I want you to eat the fake corn on the cob like you mean it because you care about me because you love me. If my two-year-old daughter can do this, I think that God himself is looking down on his pastors and saying, desire your task and do it with humility and love and care. So first, they lead through faithful presence, through doing ministry with gladness, and lastly, pastors lead in gospel humility by submission to Christ. Pastors lead in gospel humility by submission to Christ. In 1 Peter 5, 4, he says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So I'm going to drop a bomb on you. This list right here, it's hard. That is a tough standard. As I studied this week and put my 32-year-old heart to the task with this text, God hit me with a hammer. He's like, this is what I expect, and this is a tough task. And I want to say, I'm not going to get it perfectly. And the pastor that reads this and doesn't feel the weight of his call should be concerned for himself. This is a tough standard. There are no perfect pastors, but there is a perfect Savior, the chief shepherd. And I want to say this to you this morning. We're a new church. There's a lot of people here that have been here one or two times. There's a few people that have been here coming for a few months. And I want to say this. If you are coming to this church on the string of a long line of church disappointment, Right, like I've been to three or four churches in the last six or seven or eight or 10 or 20 years and every single one of them, one after another, has just failed me and let me down and I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I got my fingers crossed. Story City's the one that's gonna nail it. You're gonna, you're gonna get it right. You're gonna take care of me. You're never, gonna, you're never gonna hurt my feelings. I wanna say to you, this is not that church. Matt, Craig, and I are three desperate sinners in the hands of God, beloved by him, 
but we are far from perfect. Eugene Peterson put it this way, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. As if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. So no, you will not find this to be the perfect church, far from it, but what I do hope you find at Story City Church as we walk together and become more and more a family is that you will find Jesus Christ week after week, day after day, in everything this church does, lifted up faithfully as the one answer who is sufficient, as the true chief shepherd and pastor and lead pastor of this church who will not fail, who will care for you perfectly, who will understand you perfectly, who will not ever ignore your text right? That's Jesus. That's his task. And we are under shepherds, imperfect, called to a higher responsibility, but we're not perfect. What we do is we repent, I hope, when we're wrong and God through his Holy Spirit convicts us as pastors for our shortcomings that we repent before you and say, we're sorry. Jesus is good. Let's look to him again. We become a giant foam finger pointing up to heaven, like one of those basketball games, saying, Jesus, We're blind men showing blind men where to find food, but that food happens to be the bread of life, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he will never fail you. That's what we are as pastors. So one mark of the church that is richly experienced in the gospel of grace is that its leaders will lead in gospel humility, imperfectly always, but always pointing to Jesus. Secondly, we are all... Sorry, that was a long time just on pastors. You're like, dude, I'm not a pastor. I'm glad I came to church this Sunday. Now I know all about how pastors should act, but I'm not one. Well, maybe you should become one. (laughs) Secondly, we are all called to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. He says this in verse six. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So literally, this text would read something like this in the Greek, and Craig would have to help me with this more because Craig is way smarter than me, and he knows Greek very well. I like to play guitar. (laughs) But literally, it would read something like this. Tie humility around yourself. Put it on like an apron. Like, tie it around. It's like the last thing you put on before you go out the door. It's what people see. You tie it on. This means that humility, while it's not less than a feeling because we should feel humbled in the presence of God and by the gospel, but it's not just a feeling. There's more to it than only feeling. Humility is something that you put on, meaning you volitionally, moment by moment, you make a decision to remember the gospel. We are called to clothe ourselves in it. Humility is not something you feel, but something you do. We humble ourselves in the church, even when you don't feel it within the church, because of the realities of the gospel, we humble ourselves. So I wanna give two reasons, I believe, that this text would say, here's why you are called to humble yourself. The first is this, and the text makes it pretty clear. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I don't know about you. I do not wanna be a person that lives in direct opposition to God Almighty, who created the stars with a word. I've got a good jump shot but I don't think I could take him down. And God would say, when you choose to walk in pride, 
when you choose to harbor unforgiveness, when you choose to downplay those around you so you can climb the ladder higher, when you are domineering, when you hold a grudge, when you walk in unforgiveness, these are all rooted in a heart of pride that has forgotten how much it's been forgiven and freely given through Christ. You're not actually hurting those around you. Rather, you've positioned yourself in direct opposition to the God who is seated on the throne of heaven. And what could be more fearful than to be opposed to the almighty God of the universe? Really, every single one of us in this room has two options. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God or be humbled by the mighty hand of God. Those are our two options this morning. If you are walking through the Holy Spirit in a vivid and living relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will lead you towards humility. How you respond and remember the gospel, it's a hard thing. How I respond, it matters. But when we choose humility, this is the good news again, When we choose humility, when we choose to forgive, when we choose not to hold grudges, when we choose to take the low place, when we choose to give glory away rather than taking it for ourselves, we position ourselves under the faucet of God's favor. So I want to say it this way. It's not like, God, I'm going to be really, really humble today. I'm going to be so humble and you are going to bless me because that's how this works. You promised. No, what humility does, it's not coercing God into blessing Humility says, because I'm already blessed, I'm going to position myself this way, and God says, you're under the faucet. When I turn it on, it's going to pour, and you're going to get wet. The proud man's over here. He's not getting any favor. The humble are standing right at the fountainhead of God's goodness and favor and loving kindness, and in due time, he will pour blessing out on your life So we clothe ourselves in humility because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Secondly, and lastly, and I'm almost done, we humble ourselves because a proud heart is an anxious heart, but the humble heart is carefree. A proud heart is an anxious heart, but the humble heart is carefree. So how does this work? Why would, why would Peter say, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties on him. How are those two connected? Well, the proud heart is an anxious heart because at the end of the day, the proud heart believes and lives like it has to solve all of its own problems. What it gets out of life, it's all on its own shoulders. There's no one to turn to. This is mine. And if things go badly, if I'm not getting people to behave the way I want to, if I'm not getting what I want to out of my job, out of my work, out of my marriage, out of my friendships, out of my church, then something's wrong and I've got to take it on myself to fix it because no one else is going to do it for me. That's the heart of pride. And that heart is inevitably anxious because it's trying to control. It's trying to get its hands in everything and fix it. And guess what? You're not God. You can't fix everything. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your friends. You can't control whether or not God showers you with blessing and finance. These are all gifts that God gives us. And the proud man will be very anxious. This is very convicting to me because I think my wife would tell you I'm an anxious man. And so often anxiety can take the form of this kind of like, I'm just down right? I'm just kind of, things aren't going the way I wanted to, and I'm really down about it. God would say, hidden behind that is a heart that does not trust me, and a heart that does not trust me is a heart that's full of pride. But the humble heart, it has a huge view of God, 
It sees the gospel. It sees how good God is, and it trusts God. And this high view of God alleviates its incessant need to control its own life. It, says, it does exactly what this text says. Let's look at it. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand because you trust in his mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Fill in that, his time, not yours, in his time. And as you do this, you're casting your anxiety for the realities that are not the way you wish you, they were in your life on him. You're not controlling them. You're trusting that he does and nothing that you're walking to is, through is outside of his sovereign provision and his ability. Not only that, but he's using it to refine your faith like gold and a furnace and make you a better person, make you more intimate with him, help you to trust him so that the next trial, you are a stronger person. When life hurts or doesn't make sense or when it's wronged, rather than act immediately and fix it, the humble heart waits on God. It casts its anxiety on the one who cares and is able. The heart that has been truly humbled by Jesus is carefree. The heart that has been truly humbled and amazed by the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ is a carefree heart, imperfectly always, but always heading in that direction. So how do we know this? This is the last thing I'll say this morning. How do we know this? So if you're a skeptic in this room and you're saying, this all sounds good, this all sounds great, but how do I know? Like, how do I know that God actually cares about me? Well, I'm gonna land the plane on the same runway that it left on. We just did a circle. Romans 8.32 says this. He who did not spare his only son, so God who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You want to know that God loves you this morning. Do what the angels are longing to do in heaven right now. Stare at the gospel. Realize that God Almighty, who had no need for you, chose to die in your place. And if he loves you like that on the cross, he loves you like that right now from his throne. And everything he's doing in your life is for your good, no matter how much it hurts. And when you believe that, when we see that as a church, it will make us invincible. You can't be shaken. When life hurts, you're, you're heartbroken, your pain is real. But the body of God comes around you and your faith, this joy is actually exposed for what it truly is because actually the sorrow and the pain just serves to illuminate the internal reality that the Holy Spirit is professing in your heart that he's good, that he's got you, and it's not out of his control and you have joy in the midst of pain. So church, let's believe this truth this morning. We are the unlovable who are loved. We are the unlikely who have been chosen. We are a bunch of last picks who God put on his starting squad and sent to the Olympics. Let that truth humble us this morning. In this church, we are the children of God, redeemed if we come to Jesus by faith in what he's done, redeemed, beloved, grafted in, brought in, justified, forgiven, one day glorified and with Jesus forever in eternity and nothing can take that because it rests in the hands and the scars of a crucified Savior who said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. No one can undo what I have done. Let that truth humble us this morning to forgive. Let that truth humble us this morning to take the low place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It's a heavy word this morning for the worship pastor, <laughs> and uh, 
I'm thankful for the opportunity to deliver it. I pray that you would make it real in my heart. I pray that you would make it real in this church. I pray for anyone who's in this room right now who's just on the fringes, not sure, feeling it out. There is so much room for that here. We're so glad they're here. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, continue to speak and draw them to your side? Because only in your presence is their fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God, we want to know you this morning. I want everyone in this room to know you this morning. So continue to move in Story City Church and have your way. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.